a good friend of mine. Let's uh, let's call him Andy. This good friend of mine, Andy, right? He uh, he once found himself at the same house party as three of his ex-girlfriends. One by one, the ex-girlfriends had arrived, all of them oblivious to the presence of each other, and Andy as well. They had no idea he was going to be there. Now, as soon as Andy saw them, like, you know, and, and as soon as he realised what was happening, he became extremely nervous. Like, he hadn't maintained contact with any of these women. At least one of those relationships was still quite raw. The other two, awkward at best. Andy came over to our corner of the room in a panic. You know, what should he do? Should he leave? He couldn't cope with the social pressure, the uh, multiple versions of himself converging in one place. He didn't know who he was supposed to be. It was all becoming too much for him. One of my other friends spoke up. Come on, Andy, she said. Come on, like, what have you got to be nervous about? Like, you're with a new girlfriend now. Your career is going great. You're in a much better place now than you were with any of those three. You're the one winning here, right? Like, you're the winner. Andy seemed annoyed. This isn't some kind of game, you know. Oh, yes, it is, Andy, she said. Yes, it is a game. Do you know why? Because if it's not a game, then it's your actual fucking life. Imaginary, 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 imaginary advice. Soon after that house party, I lost my job. I've been working as a journalist for the best part of a year, but I wasn't very good. Uh, I never worked at it, really. I'm a very slow writer, and there was a recession underway. After that, I spent a brief period of time trying to live off the poetry I was writing. I tried to get enough poetry published that I could cover the rent each month. This remains one of my stupidest ideas to date. I suppose that's one of the supposed joys of poetry, you know, that poetry exists almost entirely outside the flow of capital. I mean, on the plus side, it's utterly impossible to sell out as a poet by the virtue of having almost nothing of value to sell, which uh, is what I found out come rent day. It was then that I saw my future. I was going to have to leave my house, leave the city, leave all of my friends and move back in with my parents. Soon after, my dad came to my house to collect me and take me back. We loaded up the car with all my stuff, mostly CDs, my computer, my VHS collection. Luckily, all that stuff tessellates together pretty easily. My flatmates knew that I was leaving town, but that was about it. I didn't want my other friends to know that I had failed. That, that was exactly how it felt. Like in, uh, like in Snakes and Ladders, when you step on the final snake, the really big snake, you know the one, the shit snake. And now the snake was sending me back, all the way back to the very start. Back to square one, back to my parents, all the way back to here. Coggershaw. Beautiful, sleepy, 
15th century market town. Winner of the Essex Best Kept Village Award, 1998. There's not a tremendous amount to do in Coggeshall, except trade small antique chairs with one another and drink oneself to death. It's like one long, cruel episode of Lovejoy. I mean, it's beautiful, and, you know, of course, I love my parents, but this was not how things were meant to go. Like, you're not meant to go backwards. I felt like I'd failed at being an adult. Like, I'd devolved back into being 15 years old again. Come September, I half expected to find myself re-enrolling at Colchester Sixth Form College, losing my virginity all over again to a girl that will later tell me that it doesn't count. <coughs> See, all I could think about was just how I was such a failure, you know, how I was now going to have to spend the rest of my life here in Coggeshall, spending every day listening to my dad's endless anecdotes about the Grateful Dead and having my windows washed by guys that used to bully me. I didn't have any money, so I couldn't go to the pub. So instead, in the evenings, I found myself just putting on my Walkman and going for a walk. This is yet another thing that I used to do when I was 15. Me and my mate Clive used to do this together at the end of every Saturday night. See, when we did this walk, we always tried to choose the route so we never walked down the same street twice. Um, that was just part of the ritual. doing it alone felt different but still felt good in fact as I walked I decided that I would keep going until I had found a route that took me along every single street in the village it was only once I'd completed that task that I would allow myself to go to bed I don't know why but I started to do this pretty much every night One evening, I found myself drawn to the playground near my house. I, I climbed up to the top of the slide, this same slide that I'd climbed up a hundred times in my youth. And then I sat on the top step of the slide. Now this playground was on top of a hill. So from up there on top of the slide, you can see all of Coggeshall. I found myself just looking out over the village preserved in the amber of the streetlights, the hold music of the sky. I looked out over Coggeshall and I thought to myself, what the fuck am I doing up here? Like it's 3 a.m. Like I've gone fucking mental. But then, then, then I saw the moon. I saw the moon hanging above the village 
and you know, the moon was, was, was huge that night. It sat low on the horizon, the color of caramel, it's like what they call a, a harvest moon, and it looked incredible, like supernatural almost. And what comes next? is it's hard to describe uh, to understand right i'm gonna need you to try and visualize the scene right i need you to try and see that huge yellow moon in your head okay like picture that moon next like i took one step down from the top of the slide and and as i did this part of the moon was obscured by the terrace of houses at the edge of the park. Specifically, like the bottom right quarter of the moon was now blocked out, kind of covered by the black edge of the terrace. And then, looking at that moon, I found myself tilting my head to the right, bringing my right ear almost down to my shoulder, and then, then I saw it. Yes. That's right. It was Pac-Man. Gripping the rail of the slide, I looked again, now looking down over the village beneath me. And, and, and this time, uh, this time I imagined myself like down there in the village, like wandering around those streets every night, up, down, left, right, never the same street twice, every street, every night. Oh God, it, 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 it was me. I was Pac-Man. I didn't realize that I had been playing a game all along. In fact, I think I might have been playing that game my entire life. So when I was a child, the limits of my world were the edges of my house. Soon after, the boundary expanded to the length of my street, then my village, then neighbouring villages. Every couple of years, it felt like levelling up. I've moved to a bigger city, places with new challenges, more advanced terrains. About every five years, I'd jump again. Each new level, bigger, uglier, harder. See, now I'd come to think of these migrations as like, like a form of progress, like not spiritual progress or financial progress, interpersonal progress, no, just simple square mile expansion. I was increasing territory, expanding the map. In fact, I think this was the only rule that I'd followed all my life. Five years, new city, keep moving. Oh God. You know, like when I say it like that, have I, have I really, like, have I actually treated my entire life like Pac-Man? Oh, it sounds, sounds like I might have always been Pac-Man. Do, do, do you know what, actually, as it turns out, like, I'm exactly the same age 
as Pac-Man. He's born the same year as me, right? That's, that's quite a horrible revelation to, um, to find out that you've essentially based your entire life philosophy on an 8-bit video game. <sighs> See, games give you something that the real world can't. Right? They give you ways to win. They give you an opportunity to complete something, to objectively 100% complete something. Not, oh, you know, I finished it to the best of my abilities. Not that, like, I mean, you can say, I finished it. And I love endings, right? I think that's why I love stories, right? And like, endings are powerful like precisely because they're an imposition on nature like in real life like nothing ever really ends right energy just transforms the, the closest nature ever gets to an ending is what like maybe a beach that's a bit like an ending isn't it you know kind of running out of country and and beaches are awesome which just goes to prove my point <laughs> that the endings are Endings are transcendent. Endings are satisfying. Pac-Man has an end. It has a final screen. It has a perfect score. Um, back when I was growing up in Coggeshall, as a kid, you know, games allowed me to feel empowered. At a time in my life where I had pretty much no power at all. I come home from school, confused by girls and double French. But as soon as I was back in my bedroom, I could turn into a giant lizard and smash up Manhattan. Or save a princess from a demon overlord. And once it was done, it was done as well. I would even get a little message at the end, you know, a little word of thanks like like this one from ghouls and ghosts congratulation this story is happy end thank you there's something you don't hear very often at 13 or at 30 for that matter About 10 years ago, I moved to Newcastle. This particular move started poorly, even for me. The day that I arrived, I accidentally left my coats on the train with my asthma inhaler in the pocket. Uh, I got off the train into a snowstorm and immediately had an asthma attack. I had to wheeze up the hill and check myself straight into Newcastle General Hospital. The next day, I, uh, I woke up in a hospital bed, my first day in my new city, and I had no idea where I was. I didn't even know what city I was in or, or anything. I mean, it was only for a minute, but in that minute, I was completely lost. Now, as a human being, you could be expected to feel pretty low that moment, but, but in the video game world, 
Well, this is just par for the course. Like, do you know how many video games start with your character just waking up, like, with nothing and no idea of who they are? Like, amnesia is, is like, the oldest trick in the book. And my gameplay instincts kept me calm and in control. As I was leaving the hospital, like, I, I suddenly found myself thinking about Grand Theft Auto. Why did I move here? I guess it was the weather. Because each of those games, like they, they, they start you with nothing. You come into Liberty City with nothing but a vector haircut and a punch button. You can't even walk through a door successfully, but that's the rules of the game. You just gotta start at the bottom. And perhaps this just illustrates my limited worldview. You know, rather than philosophy or literature, it's, it's a video game that helps me. But yeah, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. In my darkest hour, that was what I called on. I called on Grand Theft Auto to see me through. I thought to myself, I'm all alone in this city, but all I need is one guy to give me a job. That's it, just one guy to give me a job. Soon I'll find a second guy to give me another job. And like very, very soon like I'll have so many jobs that I can go back and murder that first guy who gave me a job. I won't need him anymore. I'll be running the Mexican powder cartel from my penthouse by Christmas. Or, you know, whatever the equivalent of that is within the Tyneside literary community. See, point is, like, I, I had faith in the game mechanic. It, it helped me to see the world through that lens. Now, I know that not everyone is going to like this metaphor of seeing life as one big video game and sure like I see the dangers in the gamification of our lives I mean just look at social media and the effect of installing score counters on our self-expression and see all the terrible things that's done to the way that we communicate I mean there are no doubt there are, there are some people out there that just won't relate to the game metaphor uh, they will argue that everyone has different needs uh, for example, some people probably prefer to use the farm metaphor to understand their lives. They, they, they prefer to use phrases like, oh, you know, I planted the seeds of this or I grew into that. Others might prefer the journeyman metaphor, thinking of life as a road that they are walking along, talking about crossroads and right and wrong paths doubling back. And that's the metaphor, the metaphor of the road. That's the one that speaks to them. And I mean, there are some people out there who just don't like to use metaphors to describe their life at all. Like that they think that these allegoric readings of life just end up shielding us from the real complexities of the world. I mean, for them, life is just life. You know, it's your family. It's your home. It's the little domestic things that we do every day, enjoying each one in turn. But like, you, you have to understand all these people are wrong like they're all wrong like everything is games it's all games like working on a farm that's called farmville mate like moving along a road taking one step at a time that's called streets of rage you dickhead oh no okay life is just life it's just the little domestic things you do every day oh yeah no you're right okay oh no, hang on one minute have you not heard of a little game called the sims you're just describing the sims mate you guys are all fucking idiots no obviously obviously i don't think that I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to prove to you how deeply 
I'm contaminated. That's all. I'm part of the first generation who has never known a world without video games. And as I've grown, uh, games have grown with me. Uh, last year, the ESA revealed that the average age of the video game buying public in the UK is 33 years old. The kids who began buying video games for their Atari 2600s back in 1982 are still playing, somehow incapable of putting down the game controller and doing something constructive, like putting up a shelf. Video games are in our, our film, our music, our art, philosophy. Like these games, they have to have changed us in some way, right? That they're already in there, like in our brain. These buried pleasure centers, forgotten algorithms whirring away in the background. They've become part of me. They are part of my reality. And then the next thing you know, I'm spending half a year wandering around Coggeshaw in the dark. I mean, you have to ask yourself, do you, do you know what your game is? I mean, do you know what ludic time bomb you've embedded into your little baby brain? Do you, do you have any idea? What, what, what have you put in there? Is it, is it Puzzle Bobble? Is it Championship Manager 2? Is it, is it Bad Dudes versus Dragon Ninja? Like you won't know, you won't know, not until it's too late. Unless, no, it's, um, that's probably nothing. Well, okay, seeing as you asked, I might have something that will help. Just a little way to maybe, you know, exorcise those demons a little bit. Yeah, okay, we just gotta, just gotta spin this wheel here. Okay, so every point on this wheel refers to a different sonnet. 12 sonnets in total, each sonnet connected to a different character from the 1991 Capcom beat-em-up bestseller, Street Fighter 2. There we are, round and round it goes. And we're stopping on Zangief. That's interesting. Okay, let's do Zangief. So apparently, if your birthday falls between 21st of April and the 21st of May, then Zangief is actually your spirit fighter. It's a bit like a spirit animal, I suppose. He's, he's someone to help guide you through the maze, there to provide insight when you need it. It's just a way for you to be more proactive with your ludic reasoning rather than waiting for it to come lurching out of your subconscious. Before you hear the sonnet, uh, you're going to hear the official citation for Zangief, transcribed from the SNES manual. It's just a little bit of extra guidance to help you activate this sonnet in whatever magical practices you want to use it for. Many believe that Zangief entered the tournament out of his fierce respect for his country. 
but they are only partially correct. Zanji loves his country, but, he loves to stomp on his opponents even more. What else would you expect, from a man who wrestles bears for fun? Arriving on the Black Isle's shores alone, the Russian picks his partner from the trees. First thinking of shit, its idle drone awaits the final dance of amputees. His thumb pushes back its narrow skull, the claw lacerations masked by ginseng. The thin air leaving his sense so dull that the snap of its neck is unconvincing. It makes a map of Russia with its death, the ice cracking beneath it slick with red. Perhaps this is why the wrestler hefts the beast a mile back to the boat instead of cleaning wounds or bandaging his veins. He bleeds until he sees those stars again. Okay, take another spin. So Zangief is traditionally associated with pride. Uh, the 12 fighters taken together represent the entire breadth of the human condition. You know, we have a Chun-Li, an Interpol agent determined to avenge her father's murder. There's Vega, a masked bullfighter who believes his strength is in his beauty. And characters like Dao Sim, a, a, a yogic soothsayer who has channeled his spiritual enlightenment into the power of being really bendy. There we are, you see... Pride, vengeance, vanity, bendiness. The human psyche broken down into its most primary of elements. Okay, next we have... Blanca. If your birthday falls between 22nd of December and 20th of January, you are Blanca. Very little is known about this bizarre fighter from the jungles of Brazil. For years, the natives have reported seeing a half-man, half-beast, roaming the rainforests. Using a technique he learned from electric eels, Blanca can channel up to 1000 volts through his skin. Anyone who tries to grab him during this time is in for a shocking discovery. The child held up his necklace. A rusty 9-volt battery, threaded through with wire. Homem Branco, he said. His other hand thrust forward in spasm, as if to summon fire. Soon after, Maurice's fine white hair flew straight up like a column, as if he had rubbed it against the balloon of the moon. Oblivious, the old man just waved back. At closing time, the tar sky turned to TV. Men with rifles ran into the trees. Later, their corpses showed signs of a beating, yet not enough to stop their heartbeat. They were earthed straight away. Back at the school, I watched their children pitch light bulbs at the wall. Okay, spin again. Just uh, for the uninitiated, 
the plot of Street Fighter 2 is loosely cribbed from Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. Evil megalomaniac M. Bison hosts a street fighting tournament. Twelve competitors enter, each with their own personal motivation for winning. As the player, you get to choose your representative and then guide them through the tournament, ending on a final battle with M. Bison himself. Also, PS, uh, 12 characters means that I'm taking everything up to Street Fighter 2 Turbo Alpha Edition. Anything after that, I'm counting as apocryphal. Next up, Ryu. Symbol of discipline, of balance. Uh, if you're born between uh, 24th of September and the 23rd of October, then you fall under the protection of Ryu. Ryus are introvert. They're ruled by Venus. They're often fussy eaters. Uh, turn-offs include garlic, pushy people, and travel. Famous Ryus include Missy Elliott and the historian George Bancroft. Student of Master Shenglong, Ryu has developed into a pure warrior. Ryu has no home, no friends and no family. Instead, he wanders the globe, seeking to test his skills against other fighters. From fairest heroes, we desire a code that locks their bare souls to the dojo floor. Traditionally, the four kanji disclosed in chapter seven of the art of war. Not crouch, crouch forward, walk forward, then punch. He thinks this as he pushes out his palms, blowing a cannonball of key, a lung of fire right through a nearby field of corn. Hadouken, says our hero, feeling cheap. Recalling Master Shen Long's final thoughts, how keeping oneself pure did not just mean hadoukening at everything you saw. Whoever fights like wind has but one blow. They only fight themselves in different clothes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to do all 12, by the way. Uh, just, just, just a couple more. Like most people who went through the modern comprehensive syllabus, I grew up with little knowledge or interest in classical mythology. At the time, right, I just saw the classics as just this kind of cryptic language of the private education system, you know, sort of passed down through generations of topper reading boater-faced chinless wonders like i didn't understand it i didn't want to understand it fuck it i thought you know let them just waffle on about archetypal hopes fears and passions i'm just gonna go play video games instead but ah yeah of course all i was doing was substituting one group of two-dimensional heroes for another right you see like these two worlds like they're not that different you just got to go look at Super Mario Brothers to see that it's just a thinly veiled version of 
Homer's Odyssey. Like once you've substituted Greeks for plumbers, like everything else is pretty much left verbatim. Here we go. E. Honda. 21st of March to the 20th of April. Edmund Honda has been trained since birth to take his place as the greatest sumo wrestler to ever step into the ring. Upon receiving the title of Grand Champion, Honda vowed to prove that sumo wrestlers are the greatest fighters in the world. Honda's great advantage is his size. He loves to pound his opponents into corners and then knock them out with a quick series of punches. Also known as the hundred hand slap. Little extra history on E Honda. Uh, in the game, E Honda is wearing kabuki makeup. So I did a bit of research into the origins of that particular design. And uh, that particular design of kabuki makeup belongs to a character called Kamakura Gonogoro Kagamasa. Uh, excuse that awful pronunciation. Uh, uh, Kagamasa is the main character from the Kabuki play Shibaraku. Now, the, the climactic moment of this play comes when a, a goodly samurai is being assaulted by a group of villains. And uh, from offstage, uh, Kagamasa shouts Shibaraku, meaning stop a moment. And then he steps out onto the stage in a magnificent costume. His appearance on stage like immediately freezes the action, which uh, allows him time to sit on a stool and then deliver his monologue. And then once the monologue's finished, he restarts time and drives the villains off. <laughs> Last year at Minamiza Kyoto, he saw Kamakura stop time, swan out on the Hanamichi like a game show host, heavy with answers, turn about and wink before killing the frozen soldiers. In the empty bathhouse, he thinks of this, how peace before battle feels now no more than ostentation. Edmund writes out his father's poem. Steam hides the bather, yet it condenses into ladles of water. Hands upon his starched equator, displaced from the vacuum of his stable, he hears the crowd sound out the pattern. 100 single hands, all clapping. I think there's a kind of formal elegance about the cast of Street Fighter 2. They feel like the, it's the perfect model for a new strain of mythology. 12 heroes just as two-dimensional as heroes of yore, complete with a complex interlocking backstory. See, just like the classics really, everything is allegorical. The cast of Street Fighter exists within all of us, constantly fighting it out for supremacy. Each new challenge is a fresh shake of the bones, 
Pride may conquer honour, wrath may conquer pride. One by one, the pieces fall into place, leading to a final confrontation with fate itself. I think I have to rig this one. Let me just grab it. Yeah. M. Bison. 24th of October to the 22nd of November. M. Bisons are passionate, resourceful, jealous. They can also generate a deadly electric shell around their body that murders anyone that they touch. Oh, and they can fly. Never has a man been more cloaked in secrecy than M. Bison. Ever since he emerged to lead the international criminal organization, Shady Lou, the world has been awed by the incredible power at his command. Seen as the master of evil, Bison rules over his empire with an iron fist. By channeling his psychic energy through his body, Bison is able to levitate and surround himself with a powerful flaming aura. The author's eyes, empty colosseums, long bleached of blood, sterilized exit wounds. He parts the safety curtain, blue neon, autographing the air with his nom de plume. You feel like you've murdered this guy before, for greed, glory, maybe vengeance, or sport. And yet, yeah, you have. Seconds later, reborn, he headed back up the mountain for more. Sometimes those other timelines feel so near, you forget why you're doing this. As if Jupiter, slouched in his electric chair, was just mashing buttons, trying to hit blindly upon a miracle, proclaim his divinity then unplug the game. Imaginary advice. So if you'd like to read uh, the rest of the sonnets, uh, you can download the book for free from Penned in the Margins. Look, I'll, I'll just link it in the liner notes. And the book is like beautifully illustrated. The illustrations are like way, way better than the poems. Uh, so I wrote that book. It's called uh, Hayakuretsu Kayaku. Uh, I wrote that uh, during that half year that I was stuck back in Kogoshul. And I'd like to think that it helped me to move on. At least it helped me to bury Pac-Man and uh, choose a new game avatar for the future. Uh, something slightly more complicated, an avatar maybe a little bit less concerned with eating and going in circles, or so one hopes. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, uh, there's now a way that you can do that. Um, I've now started a patron uh, account, that's patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, so uh, if you want, uh, you can use that website to pledge a small monthly donation to the podcast, which helps me then fund making it. You can uh, pledge as small as you like, but down to, uh, it's an American website, so it's all in dollars, uh, but uh, you know, like uh, you can pledge uh, like as little as 
uh, one dollar, uh, um, and all of that makes a huge difference, basically, uh, to being able to keep this going. So, uh, again, I'll put uh, a link to my Patreon website in the liner notes for this episode. Uh, thank you, thank you so much to all the people who have uh, already donated through Patreon, who signed up last month. Uh, John S, Chris A, Hannah N, Penny L, Luke W, Phyllis D, and Gordy. May gods and cats smile beseechingly upon your souls. Anyway, uh, this has been Imaginary Advice. Um, my name is Ross Sutherland. Uh, I'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.